Welcome back to the Sunday Long Read Podcast. My name is Jacob Feldman. Uh, we've got a great guest today. I'll tell you, uh, whenever I'm listening to these interview shows, I always want to blow right through the intro and get to the conversation. So we're going to take Charles Duhigg's bio, the Sparknotes version. Uh, he's a Pulitzer Prize winning reporter who most recently wrote a mammoth Amazon feature for The New Yorker. He's also the best-selling author of The Power of Habits, as well as Smarter, Faster, Better, which you can buy on, on Amazon. So I'm looking forward to discussing some of the, uh, some of all that, uh, some of his more recent audio work as well. Charles, how's it going today? Good, good. Thanks for having me on. I'm a, I'm a huge um, Sunday Long Read fan, so it's, it's a real treat to be here. Oh, fantastic. It's, it's, it's a pleasure to talk to you. So let's start with Amazon. You know, what, what else is there in the world to talk about? Right. You've pre- you previously written you know, big-time pieces on Apple and, and Google. How did Jeff Bezos' company enter your crosshairs? Well, so um, so earlier this year, I, I, had, I had been writing, um, I'd written a piece about um, Silicon Valley for The New Yorker and was kicking around ideas with my editor there for the next piece. And I was like, you know, there's this company named WeWork and like I really think I really think it deserves some scrutiny. And yeah. so I was pretty psyched for that. And then I came in and David Remnick had an even better idea, which is he basically said, like, look, like we should go after these big targets or not go after them, but but you know, look try yeah. try and, and weigh in and explore them. And right now, Amazon Amazon is the biggest game on earth, right? It's the <laughs> second largest private employer in the United States. And mm-hmm. this was actually before um, some of the like Jeff Bezos craziness had started. And he had, the company had become a punching bag for the Democrats. And so, and he was like, look, I really think that like there's a, there's an important story here understanding A, why is this company so successful? B, should be, we be applauding that or worried about it? And C, what does it tell us about like America today in our economy today, that this company is is one that we all use, that most of us kind of have these very warm feelings about, the second largest employer in the United States, but it seems to be doing everything and everywhere. And should we be worried about that? So that was <laughs> yeah. the genesis of it. And so that what, what was that, 18 months ago? What did you say? No, it was like it was like seven months ago. It was about seven, seven months, months ago. ago. Yeah. yeah. And, and so that must have been right before Bezos became tabloid fodder yeah right? it was right right like yes i think i think if i remember correctly the timing like a little bit of it dribbled out but um nobody was quite quite prepared for like the <laughs> the national inquire grand, right. battle grand royale <laughs> that was that was coming down the pike yeah so so how do you how do you start on a company like amazon that's in every sector in every city all over so the the number one thing that I do, and um, hopefully I, I I love your guys' site. Hopefully, not that many people are listening to this because I don't want to give away my best tip. But here's what I do: I go yeah. on LinkedIn and I yeah. look up everyone who used to work for a particular company, mm-hmm. and then I just start contacting them. And like you know, with a company like Amazon, I I mean, I I ended up talking to over 200 people. I probably sent <laughs> I don't know 600 emails. 700 emails like like i literally just i'm kind of indiscriminate like if i if you used to work for amazon and it looks like you're someone who is like in an executive capacity i probably sent you an email at some point saying hey would you be willing to talk to me and and the nice thing that happens is everyone is listening and you know is that you you know some of those are people who say sure i'll absolutely talk to you and then they're like let me just tell you the cafeteria was terrible and this is why and you're like okay that's that's not the story i'm looking for but yeah. but then eventually you find a couple of people who who get what you're trying to ask about and have mm-hmm. really interesting things to say and then of course my last question is always, you know, who else should I talk to? And by the way, mm-hmm. I won't use your name. You know, the conversations on background. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll I'll tell them that someone recommended I reach out to them, but but won't tell them who. And that, of course, you know, sort of if pretty quickly you get this path and this long call list of people to reach out to who yeah. are really useful. How, I'm curious how your success rate with with former Amazon employees compared to, to previous companies you've written about. Um, it's always miserable, right? It's yeah. always it is always always terrible. It's yeah. like. It, I, like in fact, it's just one of these things that at the beginning of a story, I, I mean, I also go out and I read all the clips, right? I read sure. everything I can. I write down all the names that appear in those stories, but it's always like that that first initial. I, I call it blasting because mm-hmm. I just like sit down on my computer. I'm like, I'm gonna send seventy emails today, and I'm gonna make <laughs> thirty phone calls, and like it's so depressing and disappointing. And then when you finally find someone who's willing to talk to you, it's like, it's like, you know, the heavens have opened and all of a sudden the world is a glorious place, but that is always the hardest part. And I, it's, I mean, 
if it's like a two percent reply rate, mm-hmm. that's pretty good. Yeah. Um, but it works. That is the thing is that like every time I've used this strategy and I used it with Apple, I've used it with, with Tesla, this strategy, the truth of the matter is that like, you want to talk to the people who no reporter has ever reached out to before. And because no reporter has ever reached out to them, because, you know, all my peers are super smart and super ambitious and they're, they're doing everything right. The only way I'm going to find those folks is almost by accident. And the only way that, that that accident happens, I call it the serendipity tax, is that you have to pay a big tax. Mm-hmm. You got to send a lot of emails. And you know, reading the story at the end of the day, you kind of have this flywheel theme that kind of works throughout. And I'm curious if that was something that you picked up on Eclipse and decided that was the best way of kind of explaining what's going on at Amazon or how that developed. So there's this central concept at Amazon, which is that one person I was talking to, he actually put it this way. He was like, he was like, I've had five different jobs at Amazon. But they were all the same job. And every Mm -hmm. job at Amazon is the same job. It is to create a flywheel. And a flywheel is you create a new product or a new business or a new something. And and you create it in a way that it becomes self-perpetuating, where the success builds on the success. So one of the examples in the story, for instance, is that they they decide to come up with this, they make this, this streaming device you can plug into your TV. And the reason why they decide to make a streaming device, and Roku's already out there, right? There's competitors in the field, is that they say, okay, look, if we can make a streaming device, then we'll get more data on what television programs people are watching. And, and particularly, which ones they're watching longer than other ones. And if we have that data, we can use it to make our own premium shows. And if we make our own premium shows and they're good shows, we can give it to free to people who have Prime. And that'll get more people to sign up for Prime, which everyone listening knows what Prime is, right? It's that mm-hmm. de- delivery program that you pay like 119 bucks a year for now. And if we get more people to, to sign up for Prime, then we'll actually be able to negotiate lower shipping rates with UPS and FedEx. And if we can l- negotiate lower shipping rates, then we can actually sell everything, including these streaming devices, at a higher profit margin for us. So by building a streaming device for your computer, we're actually creating a little industry that creates TV shows and brings down shipping prices. That's the flywheel. And every single thing that Amazon builds is an attempt to create a new flywheel. So that once you start being successful, the success actually drives more and more success, that you you become stronger and stronger and stronger. So I would reach out to people and they would mention this flywheel, right? It's something Jeff Bezos mentions. This guy told me my every single job is to create new flywheels. And I thought that was really interesting because it was a, a useful way to help me organize what I was learning. Mm-hmm. And then this other thing kind of emerged, which nobody mentioned to me. But I was trying to think to myself, like, how do I situate Amazon and what Amazon is in a historical context? Because I think one of the things that happens is that as someone who studied history and loves history is that we tend to become so focused on the here and now that we forget that that many of the things that we're freaking out about or like throwing up our hands over they've actually happened before <laughs> right and like yeah. and like the republic survived right and so so i was i was thinking to myself like like what's an example of a company that was kind of like the amazon of its day and it, and once i thought about that it was obvious what it was it was general motors and alfred sloan right the ex- Alfred Sloan was not the first to like create the mass-produced car, but he learned to manage his company in a completely different way, and it changed the world. And they be- General Motors was the most dominant company in America. It ch- we live in a world that basically all of us live in com- work in companies that are, that are sort of imitators of GM's management systems. We don't even realize that now. And so then I started looking into Alfred Sloan and GM and realized, oh, there's actually the way to this way of telling and explaining the story of Amazon and the role it has today by also telling the story of General Motors and Alfred Sloan and explaining what happened to GM because eventually it was brought to heel by the government and by unions and explaining why that's not happening right now with Amazon. That helps us understand how the world is different, mm-hmm. not just how Amazon is different but how today's world is different in an interesting way. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think that's what sets a number of your pieces apart. I mean, if you go back 10 years ago, you were doing hard reporting on on Apple or whomever, but very context-free, I guess you could say, you know, like individualized. Is, it, is that something you've, you know, you kind of need to do now as you work on these longer magazine articles to, to please yourself is to tie it in to, to some larger 
you know, idea or evolution? Absolutely. So, yeah, I mean, not not just because like to please myself, but, but actually I think that that is the value that we bring. If you're not doing daily news, mm-hmm. you should be shooting to write a piece, I think, that people would read 10 years from now and found find as fascinating as as if it came out today. And so the question is, how do you do that? How do you write stories that are independent of the time or the place where you're writing them? And there's a lot of different ways, right? One of them is voice. So I think about like Calvin Trillin writing about um, crime in the 1980s. And he, he wrote this piece that I love called Covering the Cops about uh, the woman who writes about murders for the Miami Herald. And like it's, it's, it's from the 1980s in Miami. Like it's a completely different world. But you read that piece and it's just so much fun to read because yeah. the, it's funny and the characters are so real. So that's one way to do it is through voice. Another way to do it, I think, is to try and – talk about things that are bigger than just the subject that you're writing about. And there's a there's different ways to do that. One is to look at history and put things in a historical perspective. Another is to look at theory, right? Which is, I think, what Malcolm Gladwell does so well is that he basically finds studies to to introduce questions that we didn't even realize we ought to be asking previously. Um, or another way to do it is, I think, what Michael Lewis does, which is to, to find these kind of... Um, heroic stories these stories that where the form is something we're accustomed to there's a good guy and a bad guy and and to play within the constraint of that form to tell a story that seems timeless and interesting but is completely surprising because it's taking place in an environment where you had no idea that the that a fairy tale could even exist and, and so i mean i guess part of that for you you mentioned the character aspect i'm curious with Bezos, that's who you open with. You open with with a you know fascinating anecdote between him and and, and Gates and and scheduling. How, how much did you want to get into Bezos's psychology and and how his success has changed him? How much of that of the story did you feel like that was? Well, I would have loved to have gotten more into Bezos. So so for me, every story has to have a character. Like mm-hmm. like that's the foundational element of every part of a story is is to have a character and that character frequently is a person right but it could also be an idea it could be like one idea or it could be like michael Pollan has talked about using a, a steer like a, a as a, a an animal as a character but but i do need one character i need to walk a path a narrative path alongside one person and my hope was that that person would be Jeff Bezos, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like he would be like, come on in, Charles, have a seat. And I'm going to tell you my life story. That did not materialize. <laughs> right, right. And it was pretty clear pretty early on that it wasn't going to materialize. Mm-hmm. And so at that point, then the question becomes, okay, I, I need a character. I have to have a character. And I need a story that has a beginning, a middle, and an end. Like that's, mm-hmm. that is critical and essential. So let me go find a character who's going to actually tell me what's going on. And then when I take you into – and I found this guy named Ian Freed, right? right. Who, who like he, – he's actually like a super wonderful guy. And he had overseen the development of the Echo and of the, um, of the, the Fire Phone and of the Kindle. So he was actually like – he had a pretty important job. But by hearing his life story at Amazon, I could take the reader into Amazon and educate them about Amazon through Ian's eyes, which just makes it – so much richer because you have this this proxy for the reader, this friend who's introducing you to everything. Now, if I'd gotten access to Bezos, it would have been a completely different story, and I would have written it completely different because Bezos would have been mm-hmm. my character. Mm-hmm. But I didn't have that access, and so so I had to go in a different direction. Yeah, yeah. The, I'm curious the, the the reaction to this story. You know, Elizabeth Warren uh, tweets it out. It, it hits at a time when a lot of people are talking about monopoly, etc. What 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 did you expect? And 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 it also came at the same time as a very large uh, Atlantic story. And, and how do you how do you see the Amazon story playing out? So, it, and I'll also say, like, it came out at a time when there's a lot of other great reporting going on, right? And it's mm-hmm. it, like, I, I and we should give shout outs to you know, BuzzFeed did this amazing piece, and ProPublica did this amazing piece, looking at drivers who are killing Amazon drivers who are killing people in accidents. The Wall Street Journal has done like amazing reporting about um, things being sold on Amazon that should 
not be sold either because they're illegal or they're dangerous. And and then you you mentioned Frank Foer. He had a cover story and uh, that came out like ten minutes after mine posted <laughs> um, in the Atlantic uh, about sort of like looking at Jeff Bezos and trying to get inside of his, of his brain. And so I think that one thing that happened is that there's a lot of conversation about Amazon right now, and yeah. this story hopefully contributed to it. The thing I find about these big stories, and this is one of the things I love about the New Yorker is that these stories are so long that the conversation it takes a long time for people to digest them like the story was 13,500 words yeah so legitimately it takes people like a week to read it right because you read some here and then you do other yeah, stuff and sure. you come back to it and so the conversation i find tends to be much longer than it would be when i was writing hmm. for the new york times because you're you're not only waiting for people to read that piece and to digest it but then to think and reflect on it and then tweet about it or comment on it. And so as a result, the conversation goes on for you know a month, a month and a half, maybe even longer. And that's a really rewarding part of writing these big stories is that it's, it's, it's not a quick hit. It's not cotton candy. It's something that people talk about for a long time. I also found that true of writing books. Like one of the reasons I sort of fell in love with writing books is I wrote this book, The Power of Habit, that came out like eight years ago now or seven years ago. And like, I still get five to 10 emails a day from mm -hmm. someone who read the book, just, just recently read it and said like, here, let me tell you what I think about the book. And so it's, it's very rewarding to have that long conversation as opposed to sort of the quick, the quick conversation. Yeah, it's fantastic. And I, I want to get into the books. I do want to ask one more question. So another part of that uh, online discussion, particularly in, in our media circle and on Twitter uh, came from one of your sources, Emily Gindelsberger, who wrote a book on the clock where, where she spent some time in an Amazon warehouse, among other places, and wrote about uh, modern work in, in, in many ways. And, and after your story came out, which you talked to her for, she she had some questions about how she was cited and and, and, and took issue in a couple instances. And, and you, you responded to that a little bit online. But for the sake of this podcast, what, what did you take away from that discussion? Yeah, so, um, so I had reached out to Emily because she had worked in an Amazon factory. And, I, and I'll say at the outset, I am hugely appreciative of the time that she made to talk to me. It was, as I am with all sources, it was enormously kind of her to, to spend some time visiting with me. We didn't talk for very long. Um, and she was one of about two dozen sources I spoke to who worked in Amazon factories. Um, and to anyone who's listening, I would totally recommend if you're if you're interested in this topic to go buy her book. It's it's I, I think you'd enjoy it. But I had reached out to her because she um, she had been working at a newspaper. It's my understanding that that newspaper had downsized and she had been laid off through no fault of her own. And she got a job in an Amazon warehouse. And she collected um, reporting, firsthand experience reporting while she was working in the warehouse, which she eventually turned into a book. So and I and so I wanted to talk to her about what her experiences were like to learn sort of firsthand what she had experienced, as I did with other Amazon workers um, in warehouses. And and I think the important distinction is it, everything that appears in the story comes from my conversation with her. I did not rely on her book at all. There's there's nothing from her book that appears in the story. There's nothing there's nothing from her book that that. Um, that like was filtered into the story. And so I think one of the issues that she raised when she went on Twitter and wrote um, this a kind of long um, Twitter, Twitter thread on this was that she felt that we should have mentioned the name of her book, which is a totally understandable thing to claim to, to, to ask for. Um, and she had actually, she had said to me, you know, will you mention the name of my book? And I said, look, I can't make any promises in particular because um, we're very. I try and be very accurate in my sourcing, and I try and and describe where things came from. And in this case, we hadn't relied. I hadn't relied on her book at all in any way. In fact, I, I when I was talking to her, I hadn't read her book yet, um, and so I really just relied on our conversation. And so I sourced the the only information that came from her are these these quotes, direct quotations from her, and and we sourced all the quotes accurately. Um, and, and I think she was, um, she felt that we should have mentioned the name of the book, which again, I, I understand, but, but our first obligation is to be accurate in where our sourcing comes from. And because the book was not a source in any way for any details in the story, I felt like it was inappropriate to, to imply that any information had come from her book. And so that was the decision that we made. Um, but again, I just want to be totally clear. I really appreciate her making the time, and I really uh, uh, 
you know, I, I think people should buy her book. This is, is just an instance where um, we, I believe strongly that, that, um, that when information comes from sources, we should, um, we should be clear where information comes from. Yeah. And for me, you know, following the conversation that took place, I think the, the bigger question maybe to take a step back is the role that other journalists and other journalists work play when you are writing, uh, you know, at a, at a premier publication that that's covering something that, you know, some people have maybe have been covering on a smaller basis in bits and pieces. And I'm curious ha- how you use other journalists as sources or, or the role they play in your reporting and maybe how, how you think about sourcing. Yeah. Them. So, so to, to, to be totally clear, I, I, I never would have um, reached out to her or included her in the story if, if she was, if she was just a journalist, right? The only thing I was interested in talking to her about and, and what, which she was interesting and to talk about and was generous with her time on was her firsthand experiences working in an Amazon factory. So I always want to go to the primary source and talk to the person who has experienced something, not talk to a reporter who can tell me about their reporting or things that they've they've heard or they've collected documents they've collected, but rather go to the document itself. Or in Emily's case, because she worked as a as a factory worker, I was interviewing her as a factory worker. That that was that's why she was that's why she was interesting to talk to for me. And 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 so I, I really only relied on her as a factory worker. Now the fact that she's a journalist in some ways is even better because it gives me this comfort that that she's you know a student making observations that she that she probably takes great notes and that um you know when you're talking to sources sometimes you have to really interrogate them like are you sure you're remembering this correctly as someone who's a journalist i have like this great level of comfort that that she is going to be responsible and upright in in remembering things and and in relaying them but but the point is that i would i would never interview a journalist about their journalism um, I really want to talk to people about the experiences they have, and and then and then if they say, "Look, there was this other interesting person I spoke to," then I want to go find that person and and track them down if I can. And ultimately, that's what we did with the Amazon story, right? We we talked to over two dozen factory workers um, before and after speaking to Emily. But I think that's why this distinction is important, is because is because we want to be fulsome and accurate in our sourcing. And so, so doing so um, means being very clear in our own minds about why we're talking to someone and how we're talking to them. I spoke to her as someone who had worked in an Amazon warehouse, um, not as a journalist. And, and although we mentioned in the story her name and that she is a journalist, I, I didn't want to rely on anything beyond her firsthand experience or direct conversations she had that she was relaying to me. Yeah, I, I think that, that makes sense. And I think that it kind of explains the distinction of, of maybe how people read that situation differently. So I do, I do want to, I don't want to get too bogged down. This. I do want to jump to the book, The Power of Habit that you mentioned, because I'm fascinated by you, you, you mentioned you, you, you went to Yale, you went to business school, you ultimately decided uh, journalism was going to be the, the, the route you were going to take for, for better or for worse. Um, and, and you hit all the traditional reporter rungs, right? Washington Post, LA Times, New York Times, Baghdad Bureau, uh, investigative pieces. And then you, you add this elements about behavioral science and, and uh, uh, you're writing these books that look at science and, and self-improvement. How did how did that how did that happen? So the simplest explanation is that you know I was a reporter at the New York Times and um, and my wife was pregnant and um, we were broke <laughs> like, <laughs> and like I want I like I needed I needed to make some money and so I was yeah. like I was like well you know one way to do that is to write books <laughs> and so I um, I actually had this like crazy idea and my idea initially was. And I, and I went to an agent and talked to, uh, to them about this. I was like, okay, my wife is pregnant. My wife is a scientist. And uh-huh. I was like, what we're going to do is we're going to find, and this shows how little we understood about <laughs> basically like what our life would become once we had kids. I said, okay, we're going to find 12 studies about how to live like the best life possible. And on the day my son is born, we're going to start living study one. And then we'll do a study per month. And I'll write like this diary about like the, the year of living scientifically. Um, and so I told this agent that, and one of them was like, we were going to do a month on habits. And the agent was like, first of all, that's a terrible idea. Um, <laughs> second of all, like this whole concept of like the year of is totally tired. You shouldn't do that. Um, and then third of all, and she kindly didn't say this, but this was true, was like, if you think you're going to do anything at like 
productive after having a child in the first year, you're out of your mind. And she, but she did say, she said, but you know, that idea about habits, like that could be a book in and of itself. And then um, I found this wonderful, I didn't end up working with her as an agent. I found this other guy, Scott Moyers, who's, who's now a publisher um, at Penguin, but was then an agent with Andrew Wiley. And Scott helped me work that into a proposal. And the, the idea the entire time was kind of similar to what I do with stories, which is let me take a topic and first of all, talk about that topic like in a reported way, right? Go find stories about people who have changed their habits or how habits work within companies, but also try and understand in a broader context what habits are. Like what does science tell us about how habits function and how to make use of them? And so if we can provide some bigger context and bigger bigger knowledge to the reader that helps them understand why they behave the way that they behave, then hopefully that'll be useful to people. Yeah, I was curious. Did it feel very similar to, to reporting out a story when you're talking to these scientists and thinking about habits? Oh, totally, totally. Because because the number one question that I ask, I, or the, the two questions I ask is like, tell me the narrative of this idea, right? Tell me the story of this idea. Like you did this research. Like, don't just tell me like what you learned. Tell me the process of learning it. So, so I think that one of the reasons, one of the things that I try and remember when I'm writing, because I love stories and I love reading narrative so much, is that a narrative is a beginning, a middle, and an end, right? And it's the middle that's actually the most important part. Like if you think about like um, Cinderella, right, which is a story everyone knows, like yeah. the beginning is her mother dies and she has to go live with evil stepsisters. And the ending is that she marries Prince Charming. That's like four minutes of a two-hour movie. The, uh -huh. the rest of the movie is the middle. Uh -huh. And so when I'm asking someone, a scientist, explain to me like the experiments they did, the number one question I have is I ask them to explain to me how the experiment failed at first, right? Like, like what are all the failures you had? Because it's understanding those failures and describing those failures to readers. That's where like all of a sudden you begin to get some sharp definition of what the idea or what the knowledge or what the insight actually is and mm -hmm. then eventually you're like and this is what the scientist found is x <laughs> yeah but that's that's like the that's again like that's the extra two minutes at the end of the movie it's the it's the process of discovery that often is the most interesting and illuminating part of it yeah that, that's really interesting because you know power habit was a wildly successful book but one of the results of that is you, you have all these people that, that are taking a two-hour movie and, and turning it into a, a, a four-minute synopsis, right? Of saying, here's what you can learn from the power of habit. Here's what, how you can change, you know, take out all this silly stuff about characters and process and like, here are, I'm, I'm curious what, what that's like from you from the author pers perspective to see that happen. Yeah, I mean, I think that like, and I think anyone who's an author, even of just like a magazine piece, we've all gone through this, right? I, I think it's fine. I mean, if there are clearly some people out there who would prefer a synopsis. But I, mm -hmm. if I had written a book that was a series of synopses, I don't think it would have been particularly successful. And we know that because we can look at other books that do that all the time, and they're not that successful. And I think it's not only because people like to be entertained by books, the stories are entertaining. It's also because the thing that those synopsizers are, are not realizing is it's the story that actually teaches you how the idea how to use the idea it's the story that teaches you like why the idea matters or how to make it applicable or how to that teaches you the the contours of it in a way that makes it something you can grasp like we don't tell stories just because it's a fun way to pass the time or we want to yeah. expand the page count of the book we tell the <laughs> stories because the story the explanation of how you get to an idea is oftentimes more important than the idea itself or at least you understand the idea much, much better if you've been told a story about how someone found mm -hmm. it. So uh, to me, your, your new podcast on Slate, uh, How To, exclamation point. Right, um, the exclamation point is important, right? How To with the right, exclamation exactly. point. It's not, no, no questions. Uh, you're you're kind of carrying on a lot, of, a lot of that work in terms of you, you do seem to focus maybe a little more on process than maybe someone would think when, when they read the, the synopsis for, for the podcast. Well, I'm curious, do you see that as kind of a, analogous work or how, how has that transition been for you? So the, the podcast has been really, really fun. So, so I left the New York Times about two years ago because I wanted to have um, more time to write magazine pieces. I, I wanted to write for the, for the New Yorker um, and, and, I wanted, and frankly, I wanted to have more time to write books. And so um, Slate had reached out to me and they said, you know, would you be interested in doing this podcast? And, and the number one thing I said is, yes, I'd love to do it. 
but I, I don't want it to be a full-time job. Like I want it to be something that's just, um, you know, a relatively small part of my life. Mm-hmm. And so we came up with this format where basically for every episode, we just talked to two people and I have this wonderful producer named Derek John, who is amazing. And he, he's actually the guy who makes the, um, makes each episode work and, and really makes it interesting. But the, the thing that I learned that's different about the podcast, and again, I'm really not the author of the podcast, like Derek, the producer is the author of it. I'm just, yeah. I'm just kind of the talent <laughs> is that when you're doing an interview, so when I'm doing an interview for print, I'm constantly kind of nudging the person I'm interviewing to try and get them to think for me, right? The best interviews I found are the ones that feel the least satisfying. Because what I ultimately want to do is I don't want to, I don't want to ask them a question where they immediately know the answer. Because if they immediately know the answer, then it's probably something that someone else has already found. What I want to do is I want to kind of somehow trick them into thinking for me. And like figuring out what questions I should be asking them that aren't obvious to me. And so those con- those interviews, like, A, I come off like a moron in those interviews and kind of am, right? Because I'm asking, I'm saying things like, I'm not really certain what questions to ask you. Can you tell me what's interesting about your work? And so they're like, who is this idiot who like, <laughs> like doesn't know anything and called me? But then the second thing I'm doing is that like, I, there's a lot of pauses and silences yeah. and just me letting the other person think to try and answer a question that's like such an unclear question that they're trying to impose clarity on it. So those would be terrible tape that like, that would be a terrible podcast episode. So with the podcast episode, what I find you have to do is you have to give up all thoughts of structure whatsoever and just follow (laughs) the conversation. And so if I have a list of like seven questions, I hope to get to, if I ask the first question and the, the person I'm talking to for the podcast, if they take me down an unexpected like avenue, I just have to follow them down that avenue. I like the other sex questions. I'm basically going to ignore because mm-hmm. the whole point of of a podcast conversation is to make it, as you know, because you do this all the time, including right now, yeah. is to let it flow to like be so in the moment that you're not thinking about how this is going to end up when you cut it together, but rather just to have the most authentic sort of free flowing conversation possible. And then rely on an amazing producer to make it sound like something you actually want to listen to. So is that is that scary for you to to have to interview that way? No, no. I mean, it's taken some time to learn how to do it. Like it's taken some time to kind of just give up control and and like have faith that it's going to work out. But but I've been lucky to work with like some wonderful people mm-hmm. at Slate who who have made it work out so (laughs) and and in terms of the 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 authorial component how does it feel kind of moving from from writer to to talent as you described yourself is that a a shift you had been wanting to make and and how has that gone yeah yeah no it's a shift that i'd wanted to make you know i um i've really enjoyed it like i feel like it's been a really it's a chance to learn like a new i mean look at the end of the day whether we're like writing words or whether we're talking into a microphone or whether we're just like you know, telling a story over text messages, Mm -hmm. like we're, we're trying to do the same thing, right? We're trying to find something true and beautiful to say and trying to say it in a way that other people are desperate to listen to it, that they don't get bored and they don't tune out. They really hear what we're saying. And I find that, that when that's the goal, it, it seems the, the differences in format um, become less important to me. And there's all this stuff you can do in in audio, that, as you know, again, because you guys do this podcast so wonderfully. There's all this thing, stuff you can do in, in, in audio that would be super boring in print, right? Hearing me ramble would be like totally, totally boring in print. But in audio, there's something about the texture of the person's voice and it feels intimate and it feels – and like you hear kind of the psychology behind what they're saying just in the, the tenor of their voice that makes it fascinating in a way that you could never accomplish with those same words on a page. So, no, I've really enjoyed it. Like I, I would say if anyone listening is thinking of doing a podcast, you should definitely do a podcast. Even though it's peak podcast, there's like a gajillion <laughs> of them every single day, you should do it. It's, it's fun and you learn something new. Yeah. As you have evolved into all these different forms of, of media, how do you, to, to use a dirty word, how do you think about your, your brand? Do you think about people who are going to read you in The New Yorker and listen to you on Slate and, and read your books? Do you think of them as different audiences? How do, you, how do you think about 
who what your identity is to the public. I mean, honestly, I'm just so pleased that anyone would actually read anything or listen to the show. I don't, I don't, I don't, um, I don't spend. No, I don't, I don't think about like those di- distinctions very much. I mean, uh-huh. the, one of the, the I, I guess, with this one exception being that, like, I think if we were having this conversation 20 years ago. I think I would be much le- interacting much less with people who read or listen to my stuff. Mm-hmm. And now I consider like a really important part of my job is like every single reader who sends me an email or listener who sends me an email, they all get responses. Hmm. And I think it's like, I think we're at like 15 or 16,000 responses at this point. Wow. Like it's a lot. Yeah. Um, it, but like, it's, I think it's really important to do that. Like, I think that like in this contemporary world that there's somewhat of like an ethical and a, like uh, a good common sense obligation to say like, look, if you're going to give me some of your time and you reach out to me, like, I really need to respect that and reply to you. And so that's probably the only way I think about it. And, and the other thing I like about the podcast is like, you do have this intimate relationship with the listener that it's harder to achieve with the reader just because you're in their ear mm-hmm. and and they they see you as a person rather than just um sort of an invisible narrator. Yeah, I'm I'm curious have any of your subjects known who you are from this other thing? Oh yeah, no definitely. Oh, it's helped a lot. I mean, I I find that um very often when I contact someone um for the podcast or or even to interview them for like a New Yorker piece, mm-hmm. they say like, Oh, I know the, the power of habit. I'm familiar <laughs> with that. Like, yeah, like it, it definitely makes it easier to, um, particularly when I call them up and I have these conversations where I sound so stupid, like <laughs> I think it makes it, it, it gives me a little bit more leeway. Cause they're like, well, you wrote a book once that I liked, so you can't be that dumb. Uh-huh. And then halfway through the conversation, they're like, no, he's really actually Maybe. that dumb. <laughs> but, but they've at least tried to like, help me become less dumb in the meantime right and maybe they have some faith that they can they can fix you you know there's hope in you yeah and 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 just to emphasize this because i do think that this is like an important thing embracing being the stupidest person on a phone call is really powerful like it really pushes my whole goal in an interview is to force or to encourage the other person to think deeper than they thought before and to think for me because they they're inevitably going to know the like the question I ought to ask them. And the only way I can kind of like get them to actually engage their brain, instead of just saying things they've said before, instead of just replying to questions, instead of just, you know, repeating the rote that they've that they've done before, the only way I can get them to think is to really be the dumbest person on that phone call, no matter how humiliating it feels, in the hopes that um that it leads to something special, which it often does. Is it is it harder to to come off as dumb if they know your reputation as as a as a best selling author? No, it's way easier. I mean, honestly, because like, I mean, I'll very frequently start interviews. So, so I went to business school, and my mm-hmm. first job out of business school was that I was a I got an internship at the Washington Post, working on the business section, and I was like, man, like I know all this like business talk, and I'd <laughs> get on the phone with sources, and I would like use some business jargon phrase. And then they'd be like, oh, you know what you're talking about? And they would reply in business jargon phrase. And I could never use any of the quotes. They were incomprehensible quotes, right? It was like some dude talking about CBOs, and my reader doesn't know what CBOs are. And so, so now what I do is like literally the first question I might ask is to say, I'm really sorry. I don't know enough to know <laughs> what question I should ask you. What do you think is the most interesting thing I could ask you about X? And it's so it catches them so off guard hmm. that very frequently people are like, okay, let me think for a second. Like, what is the most interesting thing you could ask me? And they always like come up with some suggested question that <laughs> never would have occurred to me. Yeah. Right? Cause because they're they because they know their own brain better than I could ever know it by trying to ask them questions to get at it. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. I often ask that question last. And and so I'm kind of thinking about how how it comes off differently first i think it sets the whole tone so like often i mean similarly at the end of it like the last question i I usually ask in in addition to who else should i talk to is what did i not ask you that i should have right i think that's how i was trained yeah yeah but that's a different question right i think that's a question that like what have i what have i not covered the first question i really what i want to signal to the person i'm interviewing is is i do not want you to simply automatically respond and tell me things that you have already 
that you already know or you've written down or you've told other people. Like what I want this conversation to be is I actually want you to think with me and frankly think harder than me. And and people are willing to do that. It's fun. It's fun to think hard, but it, it's also work, right? And so in some respects, I'm kind of begging them slash asking an uncomfortable question to trick them into thinking when it's easier just to to spout off the top of our head things we've said before. So let's start over. Three, two, one. <laughs> what, what question should I ask you? Oh, man, that's a good question. <laughs> right now I have to think about it. Um, I, okay, so actually, like, the thing I spend a lot of time thinking about is how how do people like you and I and the people listening to this podcast, how do we survive in today's world, given that things are so different? And I'm going to make a hypothesis. I think, I think if Malcolm Gladwell or Michael Lewis, if they were 24 years old today in 2019, and they wrote The Tipping Point or they wrote Moneyball, I don't know that they would have become the stars that they have become. Not because those books aren't brilliant, and they are, but because the media world has changed so much that I think their career path might not actually exist anymore. And so that raises a bunch of interesting questions. Like, what is the definition of success in today's media world? Is it to have one small, passionate audience that, like, will will follow your every word and will support you when you need them, but they're not huge? Or is it to try and go mass, but but in going mass to recognize that a lot of those people, they might not be passionate. They probably won't remember what your name is. <laughs> they won't necessarily read the next thing you wrote just because you happen to have written it. Mm-hmm. It was clear how like the economic models and the fame models and the the influence models worked even just like in the 1990s, early 2000s. And so that's the thing I think about now is like in a world that has changed so much how how do you how do you find a way to make ideas have as much impact as you hope that they'll have? The problem is I don't know the answer to it. <laughs> Is, is is there somebody you look to who you feel like has cracked that nut at all? I mean, not. Re- I don't know. Do you like yeah. like what do you think? Like, have you like have you looked at? Is there anyone who occurs to you who you think has just like really like nailed it? Uh, I mean, without buttering you up too much, I mean, I think that one of the reasons I'm having you on is you wrote, you know, th- this book in this new category, and you've kind of owned it, right? I, I, yeah. Although a lot of that was probably luck, to be totally honest. I'm I'm uh-huh. not even certain. Like. Like particularly in this, and, and we haven't even talked about Trump, right? The fact that like Trump is consuming so much oxygen. If if the power of habit came out right now, I don't know that it would have done as well as it did previously because mm-hmm. because eighty percent of everyone's brain is devoted to like what happened in Congress today. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know the answer, except except I'll make another hypothesis, and you can tell me if you agree. I do think people love stories. Like I think I, I remember at one point um, I went out for drinks with Vic Thompson, who is now the editor of Wired and is a wonderful person. And he was working at the New Yorker and we were kind of talking about like how uncertain the journalism industry is. And Nick said this thing that I've never forgotten, which is he said, look, I know how to edit stories. And I think there's always going to be a market for stories. I just don't know where that market's going to be, but someone will find me employable. And I think he's exactly right. I think that like throughout history, like, we have shown again and again and again as a species, we love stories. And so if you're someone who can figure out how to write stories, that you make yourself more employable. Yeah. I don't know. Do you think that's right? I think that's right. To me, the, the second step is, is personality, right? Is people knowing who you are and, and having a connection to you and wanting to hear what you think about X, Y, or Z. And that's something, you know, podcasts, as you mentioned, can do a little bit and social media can do a little bit. I think that's right. I think that's right. And I think that, but then I also think that there's counterexamples. Like I think about David Grant, for instance, right. Mm -hmm. Who like is just a wonderful storyteller. And like, I have literally, I mean, I've never met the guy. I don't, (laughs) I mean, I've seen a picture of him. So I think I know who he is, but like, I don't, when you read his stories, you don't know anything about his biography. Right. You just know that like, he thinks really deeply about structure and that it's so thrilling to read what he writes. So, so I think you're right. I think that personality is an important part of, can be an important part of that that equation. But I do worry sometimes when I see younger writers who, who, spend a lot of time 
investing in like a social media following mm-hmm. who are putting the cart before the horse in that regard. Yeah, right? maybe, but maybe they know something I don't. I mean, I'm I'm not actually <laughs> confident enough to say that like they're making a bad choice. It's yeah. it's just that I, they're making a bet and I don't know how the bet's going to pay off yet. And I think it's such a desperate situation that you can't knock somebody for for trying that route oh right? totally totally right. and and like it's been so successful for some people mm-hmm. in in like marvelous marvelous ways and and the truth other truth of the matter is that i'm 44 years old <laughs> i have no idea what it's like to be a young journalist right now mm-hmm. and 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 i get i guess i guess i think both of us i assume would agree but you can tell me if you disagree <laughs> that like basically if you want to be a journalist you should do everything you can right now in journalism and see what works yes right everything you're able everything you're given an opportunity to do at least right? yeah and and supported to do the last thing i, w- I wanted to this is along the same lines because of your answer to the open-ended question i asked you but it seems like a lot of your work revolves around problem solving and, and your mind often goes to solving difficult problems whether that's changing a habit or uh figuring out journalism in, in 2019 so i'm curious I mean, have have you always been a problem solver? And then why, it seems odd to me, unique to me, uh, to have someone who's so interested in storytelling and problem solving, which I think, to my mind, are are different uh, ways of, of thinking about things. That's a really interesting question. I have never thought about that. So I think if you asked my wife, she would tell you that I'm way too much of a problem solver. Yeah. The like when she comes and she's I'm not like, shocked. That's I, I can see yeah, that. Yeah. Like she like has a bad day and like and I'm like, well, like here's a way to like solve that problem. And she's like, no, no, no. I just want to tell you about my bad day. Like try stop trying to solve my problem. But I I don't know that I'm necessarily a problem solver as much as just like I think that problems are little stories, right? A problem a problem is a story. It has a beginning, mm-hmm. a middle, and an end. Mm-hmm. And it needs an end. And and that doesn't necessarily mean that the end solves the problem. But I do think that like oftentimes like the end provides some illumination that's helpful or useful or just interesting or or emotionally sustaining. I will also say, and this is the other thing that I think that maybe ties into this. And I think this is I, I, I think the articles I write um aren't really problem solvers, but the right. books the books definitely are. That's why I'm curious, yeah. Yeah. So I think that this is true. Like there is a there's a fundamental difference when someone picks up a magazine article or a newspaper or picks up a book. When they pick up a book and buys a book, right? What's that? And and there, there's a purchase element to that too, right? There's a purchase element, right. there's them making a commitment to spend the time mm-hmm. with the book. People pick up books either because they're gonna be enormously entertaining <laughs> or because they are going it is going to teach them something that they believe is useful to them mm-hmm. in their lives. Mm-hmm. So there's this, there's this like when I was writing the power of habit, my editor, Andy Ward, who's like an amazing, amazing editor. And I, he, he like, he was like, you should read this book about the Batan death march. It's so beautiful. <laughs> and like, I, I bought it and I read it and it was, it was beautifully written, but it's about the Batan death march, right? <laughs> like it is not entertaining. It's like super duper hard to read because it's about a death march. Mm-hmm. And also it's not something that I'm really going to ever use in my life. And so I did. I loved the book. It was beautiful. But like it took me a while to read it because I would just dip in and out of it. Now there's some obvious huge exceptions to this, right? Like Hiroshima by John Hershey, like clearly is like an amazing, amazing book and it has no practical applicability to my life and it's hard to read because it's it's these painful scenes. Mm-hmm. The right stuff by Tom Wolfe is about people who are like more awesome than I will ever be. <laughs> and there are parts of it that are like entertaining and parts of it that aren't entertaining. So this isn't a universal rule, but I think that when I'm writing a book, if I'm saying like, look, like everything I write, I want at least like, I don't know, like a million people to read it. Like I want some large people, number of people to read it because, because mm-hmm. I want it to have, you know, to have some impact in the world and to share these ideas with folks. I want to choose topics that I think are things that people will not have to be like convinced to read, but will want to read for my books. And so I really wanted to know how to improve my habits. Like I had real (laughs) questions about like, why, if I'm so smart, like, like, is it so hard for me to go running in the morning or is it hard for me to lose 10 pounds? And like, that's really useful things to know. And if I can embed those insights in really fascinating and fun and exciting stories, all the better. And so it's not, I, I guess it is problem solving, but it's problem solving in a very specific way, which is to say to you, book reader, I recognize that you have a problem that actually bugs you. And I think 
I think that I could bring some joy into your life hmm. by telling you exciting, fun stories that also alongside of it helps you be the person you want to be a little bit more. And that seems like it's worth doing. Yeah. Now, that being said, the investigative pieces I used to write for the New York Times, I now write for the New Yorker. Those are very different. Right. right. And I and I do feel like um, a great investigative series does not make a great book necessarily. Mm. But those pieces are about shining a light on problems mm-hmm. and oftentimes saying this problem is so big, we don't know what the, the solutions are yet, but more people should be talking about this problem and more people should be thinking of solutions. So I, I mentioned off the top, Apple, Google, Amazon. So Facebook has to be next, right? <laughs> yeah, actually. Well, it is. So um, I'm not I'm not really like. I write about the tech industry because the tech industry is the most interesting business story right now mm-hmm. in the world. But and because it's like the characters are fascinating, right? They there's this thing in psychology where the more power you have, the more you're willing to sh- demonstrate your personality. Hmm. So so like if you have someone who like if you want to know who they really is, if you put them in a situation where they have more power, um, they actually are much more comfortable letting their personality come through. And I think about that a lot as I'm covering the tech industry because we actually get a sense of who Jeff Bezos is or who Mark Zuckerberg is or who Steve Jobs wa- wa- was much more than we can know about Jamie Dimon or other you know titans of industry because the tech industry is both so powerful right now that they're, they're willing to, they're unashamed to mm. exhibit who they really are Mm-hmm. But also because it's less corporatized, right? And so, like, right. as as protective and secretive as they are, and as much as they want to control the message, they still do things that like <laughs> let the kimono slip. Yeah. And so, like, Mark Zuckerberg stands up in the middle of Georgetown and he gives this speech <laughs> without anyone inviting him to do so, or saying you have to give this speech. He's not being forced to do it, and he says these things that are super controversial. Mm-hmm. And it gives us some insight into who he really is. So that that's why I write about tech. But but no, I'm not planning anything on um, on Facebook right now. All right, F- fantastic, uh, awesome. Well, why don't we wrap it up there, Charles? Thank you so much uh, for taking some time. Hopefully, writers, non-writers have, have taken something something out of this. And, and um, I you hope mentioned, so. Okay. You, 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 and, and by the way, I'll also say to anyone who's out there who's listening, um, I, I'm Charles at charlesduhig.com. Like. I, I really do believe in this kind of big tent and like community of journalists and that we all should like that we should try and give each other, um, you know, whatever advice we can or or learn from each other. If anyone reaches out to me, I promise I will respond to you. And I'd, I'd love any suggestions or things you disagree with or comments, particularly if they're civil and not just um, attacky. But, but I'd love to hear from anyone and, and would love to to email with them. Awesome. Awesome. Well, fantastic. Well, uh, we look forward to reading uh, whatever's next, and, and, and definitely please reach out to Charles if you've got something uh, in mind. Today's producer, want to thank John Yales, uh, and I want to thank you guys all uh, for listening again. Uh, until next time, thanks so much. Thanks.